Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. <laughs> Hi, Hi, Stu. How are you? <laughs> I am uh, I am fine. Today's a... Uh, uh, it's like any other day, except it's not. Because it's today. And it's my birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> so, you know what's different about today than most uh, other days? What? Not much. <laughs> I'm getting phone calls uh, from people who don't normally call me. So, it must be something special. That's what I'm thinking. It's your birthday. Yeah. So people are calling to say, I've been on the phone a lot today, which is really nice and lots of messages. Uh, so it's really hard. It's hard to like do nothing on your birthday because you got to respond to everybody saying happy birthday. Well, that's a good, that's a good thing to do. That's a good reason. Well, you it's look good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I had, uh, people don't know, but I, I had my third eye surgery two days ago. Yeah, I had another small retinal detachment. I uh, went in for a routine checkup to get my lens checked because I was going to theoretically have that replaced. And they found another separation. So I went in the next morning and had a twofer. I uh, had more oil put in my eye and then I had a new lens put in. So at least that's one less anesthesia I'll need down the road. But Yeah, and how are you feeling so far? I'm fine. You know, it's kind of like I've been through this before, so I know exactly what to what to expect. It's 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 not new. I'm going to be have a blurred eye for a couple months because I have oil in there. And uh, so there's some change in plans for me as far as not where I'm going to be traveling to, but how I'm going to get there. You know, I was supposed to climb into the beast next week and head out. And I think with only one good eye, uh, I think I'm going to probably end up flying this summer. Uh, Got to go visit my family in Minneapolis and then to Chicago to teach uh, with Rixa and David and Christine Loria, which will be fun. And then on to Louisville, where you you and I will run into each other. But it kind of puts a damper on our plan, which was to go on a couple of day RV trip. So I, I don't know. I might By then, I might come back from Chicago and drive out to Louisville. So I don't know. But I don't think our listeners need to hear all my logistical arrangements. No, um, probably. But I'm glad that you're feeling okay after the surgery, and it's kind of a bummer to have to do it again, but you seem to have yeah. a good attitude at it all. Well, I do. I've been listening to a lot of good podcasts about raising your uh, your vibration level and getting in touch with earth and all that stuff. And so that I think it really does help to change your attitude. Yeah. Because I'll tell you, it's interesting. I, you know, I've been, I filled out this anesthesia questionnaire now three times in the last four months. And when I think about how many times I get to say no, I'm quite happy because it's, do you currently or have you had diabetes, hypoglycemia, thyroid problems, heart problems, blood clots, bleeding tendency, high blood pressure, stroke, seizures, severe headaches, lung problems, tuberculosis, sleep apnea, liver problems, kidney, bladder, stomach problems, bowel problems, back and neck. Well, I got back and neck problems, but, you know, glaucoma. And I got to say no to all those things as I turned 67. So I feel pretty lucky that I can say no to all those things. 
And speaking of feeling pretty lucky, I want to just send out a tribute today because one of my dear friends and a friend of the podcast, uh, Jennifer Margulis, is having, as we speak, eye surgery today to actually remove one of her eyes because she has malignant melanoma of her retina. Mm. It's a whole lot worse than having a detached retina. Mm. And so I just want to send blessings out to her and have everybody think of her in their thoughts and prayers. That would be great. Absolutely. Wishing her a speedy recovery and a, and a very steady hands by the surgeon. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, having only been using one eye pretty much for the last four months, I can tell you that you can live a pretty normal life with one eye, but it's the whole disfigurement thing and the whole body image thing of the idea of having part of your body removed that I don't know how you feel about it, but I, it just freaks me out completely uh, in some way, especially something with that's so physically obvious. Yeah, I mean, they have they have things they can do. One of my clients didn't have her own eye, and there are things that they can do to help with that part for sure. Yeah, they they won't do that right now. They'll be doing that down the road, We're putting a prosthetic eye in you for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> on a lighter note. Uh, a couple of things before, uh, well, th- I mean, just want to forecast what we're going to do today. Because of the surgery and everything, I got like really messed up this week. So uh, we've had some really good listener and fellow traveler letters come in on a bunch of variety of topics. So I'm going to sort of use them to inform people listening to this podcast about some important topics. And they're going to we can get to them all, they're going to be things we've talked about in the past, you and I, Bliss, recently. Platelets, induction, breach, turning normal into pathology, twins, and placentas. So maybe what we do when we get to that segment, I'll let you pick a topic, and then I'll read a letter, and then we'll discuss it, and we'll we'll bounce around and see what we can do and make it interesting for everybody. Because these letters are, uh, you know, they're very moving to me, some in a very good way, and some in a very dumb Dr. Dogma way. But still, we can we can learn from them. Finally, I figured out how to read the comments on Spotify. I finally figured it out after like a year. <laughs> and we got really some really nice comments on Spotify. You can't respond to them, apparently. But um, there was one comment that I thought was worth mentioning because it wasn't very kind, but it was really kind of interesting the way it was worded. So somebody named Charlotte responded to podcast 306, which was... What are obstetricians taught in medical school? That was the title of the podcast. And she writes, these people are idiots. And I think she means you and me. (laughs) 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 Probably me more than you. And then she goes, dangerous idiots. And then she says, quote, empowering, unquote, people to go against medical advice. Scary. That's it. So I'm reading this for a second, and I'm thinking, going against medical advice. Well, what am I? (laughs) What are you? Right. We're medical people giving advice. So what she really means is going against advice that she doesn't like like or that that makes her uncomfortable. Yeah, that align with her values. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So Charlotte... Maybe we are idiots, but I think you should be careful about what you write because it uh, exposes uh, some truths about yourself as well. Okay. You're kind of idiots, Stu. 
I'm a idiot savant <laughs> on certain things. Anyway, I am like breach birth. I'm like Rain Man. How many matches fell out of the box? I don't know. How many OBs does it take to deliver a breech baby vaginally? None. <laughs> Infinite. I don't know. It's it's hard to know. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that was happened recently, there was, there was just something that came out in the news. You might have seen this, Bliss, that apparently there's a new, they're announcing it. Again, doesn't make it so, doesn't make it reliable, doesn't necessarily make it even available uh, because news media is all propaganda, but there's apparently a new lab test for preeclampsia. Do you hear about this? Yes. Well, I looked at the article and it's very complex, hard to interpret. And what what most I get from it is that this is a test that will eventually become universally used in hospitals before anybody really knows its accuracy. No one will be given informed consent. I don't know. It's not readily available. I don't think you can order it from a doctor's office. Yeah, it won't be on your Quest Lab request form or anything like that. Yeah. But this will be one of those examples of stage one thinking in that, oh, there's a new test that can rule out preeclampsia. Well, you know what? It's only for people that that have certain issues, but it will get overused. Yeah. It will lead people to, there'll be false positives and it will lead people to be intervened upon uh, for no reason. Uh, there's no good data yet to support the fact that it changes your management any or changes outcomes any. And ultimately, whenever you do a lab test, one of the basic pearls of wisdom we talk about all the time is you don't order a lab test unless it's going to change your management and, right. and improve the outcome. So, well, I say that, you know, it feels like in general, we've talked about the medical industrial complex feeling like women are just a ticking time bomb. And since they don't necessarily see the benefits of physiologic birth or any of those things that we focus on, then it's great because they just want to look for an excuse to intervene. And so it'll just be one more like, oh, great. We get to intervene here. Right. The problem is when it comes back negative, it won't stop them from intervening. <laughs> They'll find another test. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, that's just, you know. That's just pearls of wisdom from two medical people giving medical advice. <laughs> two dummies. No. Um, idiots. Idiots. We're idiots. Eating protein. That's your best way to keep uh, preeclampsia at bay. Just, just saying. Just throwing it in there. Uh, yeah. Okay. Our friend Elliot Berlin had Dr. Rad. I don't know if you Dr. Dr. Steve Rad. He's a MFM. And he had uh, Dr. Rad uh, about a week ago, would probably be several weeks now, um, on his podcast to talk about the 20-week scan. And so, because I always have nothing better to do, I listened to a podcast on the 20-week scan uh, <laughs> by Elliot and Dr. Rad. And Dr. Rad is a really nice guy. And he did a really good job of describing why they do it, what they're looking for, the sequence of events, how to do it. Uh, all that stuff. So I'm not going to get into any uh, uh, any criticism of it whatsoever in that regard. The the question, of course, is, is there any concern about ultrasound exposure? Right. And Elliot, Elliot asked the question and he said, no, there's some old studies, but it's not radiation. He said that. 
and we've talked about this before, it, it is radiation. It's just not ionizing radiation. All right. He says that the systems are regulated for fetal safety. I don't know about you, Bliss, but I'm not sure who's regulating them. And I'm not sure that I trust regulators paid for by GE and Samsung and other people to regulate my machinery. He says the settings on the machine are checked. Now, maybe in his office, they may have an inspector or have somebody come by once a year or twice a year to do maintenance on it because you have a service contract. But I can guarantee you that many ultrasounds in doctors' offices haven't had a checkup in quite a while. He says that some of this stuff may come from long exposures, but it's safe and regulated. What does that sound like? <laughs> safe and effective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good. You're very sharp today. It's good. So I'm glad that you're good because I'm, I've got so much in my head. Um, yeah, safe and regulated. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that makes me feel better. And and again, so it's the question of what people, you know, if you're going to have a 20 week scan, you want somebody who does it who knows what they're doing. And Dr. Rad certainly is that. But he also says there's no real concern about the number of scans. But then he goes on to say that those boutique scans are not recommended by the ultrasound organizations. Yeah. So the question I have is if. If it's safe and regulated, well, maybe it's not regulated there is what he's saying. But if you're not concerned about the number of scans and they're safe, then why do you care who's doing them? And uh, But I think part of it is control and part of it is I know that the ultrasound people don't uh, – I remember this from a battle we had 10 or 15 years ago where uh, some, some very famous ultrasonographers were lobbying – Sacramento um, to get them to make it harder for boutique places to operate simply because I think they were taking business away always again in the guise of safety yeah if it's safe then it's safe if it's it's not just safe in your office it's safe in other offices as well right uh, unless you're saying some machines are really risky and maybe you should go after the machines and not necessarily the boutique stores that's all I'm saying okay Got that? Yeah. Can I ask you a question? I love when you ask permission. <laughs> um, so I got a, um, I think this was a DM from Adored Birth. And uh, she starts off by saying, first I have to say I love your podcast and look forward to the new ones coming out each week. Um, she's a birth doula and a mom based in the Boston area where we have many choices, but the aggressive medical model is very dominant. It's such a breath of fresh air to hear your perspective and approach to birth. I'm currently expecting an very early pregnancy, six weeks or so. I had a family trip planned to Disneyland in a few weeks, and I'm wondering how unsafe roller coasters really are. So I thought that would be a fun thing for us to answer on the podcast, because um, I'm sure that a lot of pregnant people wonder, what do you normally tell your clients? Um. Well, I don't think in the first trimester it's really fairly risky. Uh, I don't think you can shake a normal pregnancy loose, but I, I, I have an aversion anyway to being turned upside down or spun around. So uh, I just don't like it. Um, and anything that has rapid acceleration or rapid deceleration is probably not a good idea mm -hmm. uh, because it, as the bigger your pregnancy gets, the more possibility of shearing forces that can occur when you decelerate quickly it's almost like being in a car accident so if you're in if you're on a roller coaster that's just going up and down and up and down i i probably would tell you, you probably should find some other pastime 
but I, I couldn't like be the baby police and tell you, you shouldn't do that. What do you think about it? Well, I mean, I would assume at Disneyland, most of the rides are probably fine. Um, but any big roller coaster that has, you know, um, yeah, like you're saying, you know, anything that's really aggressive, why risk it is kind of what I think. It's probably fine. And as always, use your own intuition about what feels right inside of you. Um, but I think that it's better safe than sorry when it comes to some of those big, intense roller coasters. Yeah, you know, I haven't been to Disneyland in a long time, but but I know that I used to get really sick on the teacups, so I'd stay <laughs> off the teacups, <laughs> and then I, I I would get I I would go not I would go crazy listening to it's a it's a small world after all, so you might want to not go in there either, just because you're you want to blow your brains out by the time you get out of there. I don't know that they have that. I think they got rid of that, but maybe it's no, still no, there. Have it? They do. Icon, of course. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, well, while we're on the subject um, of roller coasters, what about flying? What about flying? What What do you think about a pregnant woman flying at any point in her pregnancy? Do you think it's risky? Commercial or acrobatic? <laughs> uh, commercial. No, I don't think it's risky. No, that's what I I said. don't. I think I tell people who fly, in the first trimester, it doesn't really matter, but in the second and third trimester, I suggest people wear loose clothing. They stay well hydrated. They wear loose shoes. They sit on the aisle. So they can get up and move around. So they can get up and move around. They get up and pee without bothering somebody uh, sitting next to them like me. But um, yes. But other than that, I mean, the whole, I, again, the reason that airplanes say, oh, we don't want you flying after a certain month, because they don't want to have to pull over. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I usually tell people the farther you get along, the thing that you really need to consider is, is it, are you okay with if you go into labor wherever you are? Like, if you're fine with it, like I had a client who she always went to Mexico at a certain time in the summer, and she was really pregnant, like 36, 37 weeks pregnant. And she's like, what do you think, Bliss? And I was like, well, are you okay with having a baby in Mexico? She's like, absolutely. I'm like, okay, well, yeah. And, and you know, it's just that's knowing. exactly right. If you're tra if you're flying across country to Nashville or something, it's absolutely fine. But if you know, if you're going to go to a place that's, you know, the medical care or something, if you were to need it, is not something you're comfortable with, then I would say that I wouldn't plan a planned vacation after about 32 or 33 weeks. But if say your sister's getting married uh, in Nashville at 36 weeks, yeah, you can go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Bliss, um, after we take a quick break, then let's come back and let's talk about, I'm going to let you pick a topic from platelets, induction, breach, turning normal into pathology, twins, or placenta. Think about it for a second and we'll be right back. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know beginning of postpartum. 
like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then of course they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30 day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess if you can kind of test out and see if you like their, their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She's a, she was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com. That's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with a number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. Okay. Okay. Did I give you um, enough time to think? I did. I, I picked it. I choose Breach because I'm so excited about our Breach um, conference that we're going to be going to in a couple of weeks. So um, Breach is on my brain. Okay, then breach is number three. It's a short one. Uh, I've got two on breach, so let's see. This is from uh, Nicole Star Seven Thirteen on Instagram, and she says, "If I've had two prior C sections, the last one being eight years ago, and I'm trying for a V back now, should I let them turn the baby to head down position? I'm 37 weeks, and they want to turn baby." but also told me if he doesn't turn, they will do a C-section and I do not want a C-section. The doctor told me it would be difficult to find a doctor that's comfortable with delivering the baby and breach with prior C-sections. That doesn't make sense to me because they're not doctors for the comfort of it. And it's saying that their comfort is more important than mine. So the reason I highlighted this one is not just because they're telling her she can't have a VBAC after two breach delivery, but the wisdom of this woman to catch the idea that she caught her doctor saying it's difficult to find someone who's comfortable doing that. Yeah. Well, but it's not, is it really about your comfort or is it about my comfort? Right. So we want to comment on that for a sec and then I'll comment on the technical well, first of, all, of really smart fellow travelers. So for a bunch of dummies, Oh, just we, wait. We've got some smarty pants in our, in our listeners. Um, and then I would say, absolutely, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy practicing as a private practitioner, because the decision-making process is a mutual agreement that, you know, we both feel comfortable, not just one over the other. And um, I think that, yeah, she's super wise about that. Now, I don't know that I have a specific opinion about her situation, except for, as I've said before on the podcast, 
for me personally, I would want to find someone who would help me do a vaginal breach delivery. And I probably wouldn't turn my baby, but that's just because I feel really comfortable with breach. But I know that not everybody has that option because there's not as many practitioners that are available out there who will, who will or are trained in a breach delivery. Yeah, I have some several thoughts on this. First of all, so many doctors will tell a woman with a previous C-section she can't have aversion because it's too dangerous. And here you have somebody who's had two previous C-sections who they're telling her to have aversion. So which is it? Yeah, um, right. Right. Um, I'm glad that they're even offering it to her, but I too would suggest if you can find a practitioner, the only reason they're offering it to her is because they don't they don't want to do breech birth. The yeah. fact that they'll support her in a VBAC after two C-sections, even though I know and you know that a VBAC after two C-sections in the hospital setting isn't going to be as successful outside of the hospital, um, I still admire them for at least, sounds like they would offer her that because otherwise, why would they bother turning the baby at all? They would just tell her to have a C-section. Right. Um, but they are correct in that it's going to be very hard to find a doctor who's comfortable. <laughs> uh with doing a VBAC after two C-sections, let alone one that's breech. So, but there are midwives who will do that. Mm-hmm. Do we have which state she's from? Uh, no, but, it, you know, she if she's listening, she can figure that out. The problem is by the time this comes out, it'll already be uh, a result. I mean, it'll be, a, it'll be settled one way or the other. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that she, if she's writing to me and I, and, and when p- people text me on Instagram or message me, I, I respond back to them. I don't know what I said, but I, I might have given her some options. I may have asked her where she lives and, and I'm starting to get our breach list is starting to get some names on it now. So I've been giving out three, four times this week. Uh, I've given out people's names, uh, for people to search. So that's a star. So that's good. Great. Okay. And then there's a second one. Uh, This one is from Anonymous in Texas. All right. We have lots of Anonymouses, but this is one one of our Anonymouses. And she says, Dear Dr. Stu and Midwife Bliss, while I don't know you personally, I want to thank you both for having an indelible impact on my life. Big smile from Bliss. Yeah. While my longstanding desire for an unmedicated vaginal birth for my first child was not fulfilled, your podcast, No Bullshit Perspective, backed Mm -hmm. by science, logic, and heart, validated the research my husband and I had already been doing around vaccine-friendly approaches to pediatric health and gave me the confidence to insist on informed consent when and where I could. Before I share my story and ask a few questions, I wanted to acknowledge the postpartum nurses at St. David's South Austin Medical Center in Austin, Texas. We don't do this enough, by the way, so I thought that I'm adding this paragraph in. Well, I ended up having a C-section for my Frank Breach baby girl. I was able to have some of my original birth plan without any negativity or pushback, despite declining hepatitis B and erythromycin for my baby, asking for the vitamin K package insert before consenting, insisting on knowing every single medicine in the C-section process from the OB and the anesthesiologist and refusing Tylenol post-op. I ended up caving into Motrin the last day due to horrible gas pain. No one tells you about, but we can't all be perfect. Mm -hmm. I got delayed cord clamping and on almost immediate skin to skin in the OR at my request and was treated with nothing but kindness by the nurses for the duration of the day. I love that. 
By the way, this is the Birthing Instincts podcast. I just want people who just read, heard that paragraph to remember that <laughs> sometimes, sometimes hospital stuff goes really well. Okay. So then she goes on. After taking poison, aka the birth control pill, for 15 years, it took me about 10 months to conceive, but I had a normal fertility workup, and I only needed progesterone to fix a luteal phase defect, and I had a low fuss pregnancy, no morning sickness, no nausea, no excess weight gain, naturally low blood pressure pre-pregnancy and throughout, and baby had a normal heart rate and no issues throughout. I loved being pregnant. At 20 weeks, my baby was breech. This is baby number two, okay? At 28 weeks, she was OP, occiput posterior. And at 36 weeks, she was frank breech facing my back, my back right rib cage. So that would be left sacrum and transverse or something like that. I was scheduled for an ECV at 38 weeks and two days and a C-section at 39 weeks and one day before my doctor even walked into the room to tell me the dates. The doctor, after answering all of my questions without issue at my two-month visit on things like primary C-section rate, 13%, preferred labor position, any I wanted, and if she's done breech births, yes, but they usually don't do them, I was only told seven months later at 38 weeks that those were all dece deceased. <laughs> That's the word she uses. By meaning, meaning it was all bullshit. Uh-huh. She harshly told me not to put her and the other providers in a position to deliver a breech baby and to find another provider if I was considering it despite, quote, the risks, unquote. And when I was given consent to use of blood products during the C-section, she explained that if I decline, quote, this means if you bleed out, we can't resuscitate you, unquote. Overwhelmed with her fear-based language, I signed everything and cried in the car while my husband drove us home. How often do we read every week that someone cried on the way home? Yeah. And that's also known as a bait and switch, by the way, where the OB is very nice and agrees to everything. But as you get closer to delivery, uh, those things are not, not necessarily offered to you anymore. And unfortunately, that happens. I don't know if they're just not paying attention in the beginning and they figure that it's not going to be a big deal or what, but it seems to happen quite frequently as well, which is very disappointing. You know, Bliss, I think a lot of it is just it. It's it's not meant to be malicious. I think it's just easier to just nod in agreement when you have a six minute prenatal visit. In the beginning, in the beginning, right? It is yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. After getting a second opinion, we canceled the ECV, and I rescheduled the C section for my due date, but only after the secretary demeaned me for wanting to change the date after I said it didn't make sense that early and seemed to be based on hospital and provider schedules. I proceeded to do two and a half weeks of spinning babies plus moxibustion and acupuncture at the wonderful Sage Acupuncture in Austin, Texas. But at my 38-week, four-day appointment, my provider told me that, quote, I failed my ultrasound, unquote, due to low fetal movement and low amniotic fluid from 11 down to 6 from the prior week. What's 6, Bliss? It's still normal. Thank you. The movement didn't worry me. The baby had never liked being prodded during my ultrasounds and Doppler readings and moved on the drive there. But the amniotic fluid drop was never explained. My doctor said the hospital had an opening that day and advised going in for the C-section in case of an issue. I cried and said I was scared and was given cursory comfort in return. We drove straight to the hospital where our baby had a normal heart rate, 
pre-birth. At delivery, we learned she had a nuchal cord, was six pounds, 11 ounces, had APGARs of eight and nine, pooped and peed on the on-call on OB <laughs> when she delivered. Okay. So here's her questions. In terms of what ifs, could the low amniotic fluid reading have been due to human error? Yes. So my question, first, yes is the answer. And two, it wasn't low. Yeah. Right. Six is normal. Six is still normal. Correct. So this is one of those things that we talk about. It's called lowish fluid. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in the uh, ultrasound textbooks, lowish fluid is not defined. Okay. Because there is no such thing as lowish fluid. Well, uh, and but and what we've talked about before, and I learned from you, is that um, you can get different numbers from different providers, one right after the other. It's kind of like a cervical exam, you know. It's not like using a ruler on something. It's it it is arbitrary. The baby moves, the pockets change, and so yes, not necessarily error, but um, that if you got a second one right after, you might have gotten a different number. But six is normal. And six is normal. Yep, absolutely. You know, and I, I can guarantee if she'd been six the day before and then she was seven, they still say it was low. <laughs> yeah, and a, and a normal pregnant family is not going to know. They're just going to hear that the numbers dropped and that the provider is concerned and they're going to want to go along with what the recommendations are. They don't know that five is low and six is normal, right? Yeah. Unless you listen to us. <laughs> Right. Okay. Hi. Then she says, uh, the OB also broke my water during the C-section. And I just responded to that. That's, you have to, that's yeah. normal. Right. So, um, oh, I think what she's implying is that there was water there. Yes. Now that I reread it for the third time. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, there was, there was plenty of water there. Why is fetal movement a factor when evaluating Frank breech babies? Fetal movement is just part of the biophysical profile. Yeah. It's, it's not like it has to be dynamic or anything. You just want to see the baby like flex and extend its leg or its hip or its arm or something just to move. But subjectively, you had already admitted that the baby was moving fine in the car over the, going over there and the baby's moving. Baby that's moving is a baby that's fine. But yeah. just logically, they aren't going to move much in that position. That's true. It's harder for them to wiggle when they're in the frank breach position. Then she says, is, quote, failing an ultrasound, quote, even recommended language in the medical model? You have a big thing about this, Bliss. Why don't you just mention that? Well, I mean, it's exactly what she's feeling. So no, failing anything is failing your glucose test, failing um, any of the words that um, disempower us as women and disempower our bodies, obviously is not recommended. So um, yeah, it's not a failure. It's just that they there's a scoring system and they're evaluating whether or not to change the direction or the course of care based on that. But no, you did not fail. Your baby did not fail. Your baby, your body didn't fail. That's why we have some of the best fellow travelers because she's next sentence. She says, my baby and I didn't fail a thing. That's right. We only got, we got a six out of eight. That's <laughs> 75%. That's not failing. No. <laughs> right. She asked, what do you think of vaginal seating? Vaginal seating is where you take a uh, sponge or some sort of thing and you let it soak up some of the vaginal secretions. And then you, as the baby's born, you wipe it on the baby's nose and mouth and face and skin. 
And so I, I mean, I, she says, I thought about doing this, but forgot to ask at the, in the rush at the hospital. Seems to make sense to me. Makes perfect sense. And there's no reason not to, other than the mental thought of the people in the operating room thinking that it's supposed to be bacteria free and sterile, but that's not what's supposed to happen with babies. So I think it's a great idea that anybody having an electively scheduled C-section should really consider that. Yeah. And you don't even need to include them if you don't want to, you can just do it yourself. And I, it made me laugh too, because you said, um, whatever thing you get to absorb the fluid. So, um, just grab something, whatever it is. Um, (laughs) uh, four by fours can be really great. Like a gauze square can be really great for that. And you kind of just would roll it kind of like a tampon and put it inserted in your vagina, maybe in pre-op or something like that. And then have your husband or your doula, you can put it in a little baggie, have them hold it. And then later on, when you have your baby, you can just do it yourself. So it doesn't have to be something that they do for you, um, especially if you have a provider who's maybe looking at you funny about it. Um, It's something that you can totally do on your own. She says, thank you both for bringing hope and power to me and all of your listeners. I cannot wait to switch to the midwifery model of care and will continue to listen to your podcast as I further empower myself in the fight against the medical industrial complex. That's amazing. That just makes me, uh, reminds me this week, I had two inquiries, people who, you know, wanted to talk to me about my care, people who are delivering in the hospital. So those services are called monitorese. Um, And what I want to say is it seems like midwifery care is starting to become more discussed amongst women, which is great. And I definitely think if you're delivering in the hospital, having somebody by your side um, is really helpful, but I'm going to keep encouraging people that feel comfortable enough to take the leap and deliver at home because it's really different having a midwife by your side than a midwife who can hold that space for you to be able to make all of your own choices. And she doesn't have, and neither does the doula really, have any power ultimately at as to what happens, she can only advocate and educate you. No, and another good thing about the midwifery model, which I think is catching on, is that people are understanding the big difference between the two. And even if you, for whatever reason, insurance, location, whatever, you you plan to deliver in a hospital, having much of your prenatal care as possible concurrently with a midwife and your uh, OB make all the difference. Because then you'll, not only will you get all the preventative care and the nurturing that a midwife gives you, but you'll be wise enough to add, to catch the doctors when they're cutting those corners because they've only got six minutes to talk to you and they're and they're nodding their head and telling you, oh yeah, we're we're real supportive of breach delivery. And you could say, well, when was the last time you did a breach? Do you know the cardinal movements of a breach? Do you know, you know, ask them the questions and see what see what kind of response you get. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. (laughs) Really impressed. But the midwife I was with recognized it right away. Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. 
so comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have the prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, for a lot of us to be taking, especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm-hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. That was two letters on breach. So, what topic would you like to do next? Do you remember what they were? I want a little roulette wheel that like like vanna that you roll but um placenta that's my next choice okay placenta so this is um from carly and this is a follow-up actually on a story that we did read on the podcast about the lady with the placental lake and the possible accreta and the possible downs baby i don't know if you remember that you might remember it it's yeah Mm -hmm. so she's she's um She writes, hi, Dr. Stu and goddess bliss. I hope that you're both doing well, praying for your eye, Dr. Stu. I think this was before she knew I had a third surgery. (laughs) Yeah. And congrats on becoming a grandpa. Okay. I know that it's been a while since I last reached out to you. That was actually, I think it was in the spring that she reached out to us before. So it's been a while. But people might remember this story. Uh, It's been a while since I reached out to you to explaining my misdiagnosis with placenta accreta and placental lakes. I've since had my third water birth at home. I delivered Aubrey Elizabeth at 11.27 p.m. on May 6th. She weighed 6 pounds, 13 ounces, my smallest baby. I delivered her effortlessly in a birthing pool in my living room. She had her cord wrapped around her neck three times and once around her trunk. My midwife taught me that one in three babies is born with the cord wrapped around them, and Aubrey was truly my one in three. She was not born with short arms. She was not born with Down syndrome, like the Kaiser MFM suggested she might be. My placenta didn't show any lakes or any anomalies. She was born perfect and beautiful. There were no complications in my delivery or postpartum. We are navigating some oral restrictions and revisions, but otherwise seamlessly breastfeeding like I did my other two children. Kaiser failed me horribly, and we are no longer under their care for insurance. Thank you for both of making a show that shares the beauty and normalcy in home birth. Love Carly. Yay. Congratulations, Carly, and your beautiful baby. That's amazing. And I'm so glad that she had the wherewithal to be able to make the decisions that she did. But that is a perfect example of some of this early testing um, that sometimes we can get false positives. And I've heard of uh, doctors actually recommending termination before for some of these things where women didn't terminate. Or they did, 
and then they have, you know, beautiful babies. So it's just another thing to kind of take with a grain of salt, maybe get a second opinion, um, do further testing, um, because yeah, that can't, those mistakes can happen. No, they can't. And, uh, yeah, it was a perfect example of somebody who was peppered with seeds of doubt early on. Yeah. And had the wherewithal to look it up. But most, but like you said, most women do not. I think most of our listeners do. Yeah. And one of the things I would ask everybody listening now is don't proselytize for your family or your friends, but kindly suggest to them to look into alternatives like our podcast and like all those other great podcasts out there and, and all, some of the great books. Understanding that the where the medical model has led us if it's doing so well how come we're not doing so well it's the old moneyball theory from the movie moneyball if he's such a great hitter how come he doesn't hit good all right <laughs> so yeah if the medical model is so good how come the medical model isn't so good so anyway okay so that was that was an easy one so we've got twins turning normal normal into pathology induction or platelets twins Twins. That's my favorite topic. This is from Jan. This is about monodie twins doing well and what to do about surveillance on them. So this is just a short letter. I'm a CPM in Northeast Pennsylvania, where we have no licensing or regulations, with 22 years experience, but very little with twins. I have a G2P1 client at 29 weeks pregnant with monodie twins. And we've talked about in depth about the difference between monodye and dye-dye and the risks of sh uh, sharing a single placenta and having uh, blood mixing things going on, the most common of which is twin-twin transfusion syndrome. But if you don't have that by 28 weeks, it's very unlikely to recur. It's never zero, but it's very unlikely. She was seen at the MFM a couple days ago, and everything looks amazing. Only 1% discrepancy in growth. All organ systems, by the way, that's less than the error of the scan. So that means that one could be bigger, A could be bigger than B, B could be bigger than A, it doesn't matter. All organ systems normal, only three days discrepancy in estimated gestational age. I guess that's the same thing. However, in the report they sent me, they want her to have scans for TTTS every two weeks going forward, gross scans every month, and delivery between 36 to 38 weeks. Okay. They don't know she's planning a home birth, of course. Oh, okay. And that's sad for me, but common because it's just a way of avoiding being bombarded. Yeah. Um, but it's too bad that we can't be honest. I'm attending the Twin Breach Conference in Louisville in August. Yeah, we'll see you I there. I thought I could ask you about this then, but with all the pressure from the MFM for so much surveillance, I thought I would reach out now to see if I can reassure this mama that we don't really have to do all that. She doesn't want to do it anyway. Are we okay to do less surveillance if everything looks good now? How about none? Anything you can tell me about monodye delivery that I should know? Is it definitely important to clamp the cord of baby A right away? Okay. So Jan, the midwife, signed up for use my consulting service, and we're going to have a, um, a virtual consult this week. So that is one of the advantages of my, you know, having a consulting service, because this is the kind of thing where I, I just can't write this all down because it's it takes too much time to go texting back and forth. Plus, I always like to see people's faces like yours. 
mm-hmm. so that they understand. I can see that they're understanding what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That's why I do not like virtual teaching. Unless I can see everybody on a Zoom meeting and I can see if they're snoring or if they're playing with their cat or what they're doing. But, but you know, if, it, if it's just me talking to a, to a screen where I know it's going out to an audience, I, I, I just don't like that. I know that that's the wave of the future, but uh, I'm not doing that. Got it. And okay. there's a certain amount of, of free content that we are we happily give. And then we think we also have to be respected well, that, for our time and wisdom. That's all. Yeah. That's true too. That's true too. Okay. So is less surveillance okay if everything looks good now? Yes, it is. You won't get that from MFMs because MFMs are stuck in their algorithm of monodie twins every two weeks, blah, 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 blah. But you as a mother have those babies inside of you. You can tell if something has changed fairly dramatically. Um, you can tell if the movement patterns have changed. If your belly suddenly got big really fast, you could tell. Um, those things are very unlikely to occur. And the mother, again, her wishes are that she doesn't want to come in all the time. Yeah. So even if it was probably indicated for every two weeks, she has the right to say no. But in this particular case, I would tell her that, no, she doesn't have to come every two weeks. Um, None, even for me to tell her to get none is probably a little, I mean, I'm swallowing a little hard, but yes, you could do none if that's what she wants. But you have to know that you're accepting that the babies aren't being looked at. And so potentially there could be something that could happen anytime, you know? And so that's just something to consider. Now, as people who listen all the time know, I'm not a big proponent of additional testing unless it's necessary. But I think that when you're talking about doing, not doing a test, that's when you have to really start to wrap your head around. If something happened, if we didn't catch something, you know, would that be okay for me? Or would that be something that would be problematic? And, you know, usually the people who decide that they don't want to do any testing are people who feel like whatever the outcome is, whether you're spiritual, believe in God, and that's part of this conversation or not, if you're willing and understand that you are accepting whatever life is presenting to you without wanting to control it, um, those are the people who usually make those kinds of decisions. So you just have to evaluate for yourself. Exactly. Definitely. Exactly. That's I, I love. I love when you speak, speak so plainly and put it in, in plain English like that. Nobody can guarantee a perfect outcome. We just can't. Yeah. And then there, is there? Can you tell me about monodide at delivery? Well, if they make it to term, then there's really no difference with monodie and die die twins. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to immediately clamp a cord. You know, you, 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 there's nothing different. Twin, twin deliveries are sometimes a crapshoot. They can be very smooth and they can be sometimes quite exciting. Um, but there's really nothing significantly different, in my opinion, about monodie twins that make it to term. Because if they make it to term, that means they don't have, essentially, you're treating them like die-die twins. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like two babies coming out. Yeah. You're having a baby and then you're having another baby. That's right. <laughs> Just like that. Okay. So uh, one more on twins. This one's a little longer. And this is from um, Britta. She's a hospital worker uh, with a with a home birth. And she, she, she just has some witness, things she's witnessed that have bothered her. So we'll read this and see how it goes. Dear Dr. Stu and Whimsical Bliss. Ah, <laughs> I love it. I like that one. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm only reading this letter because she called you whimsical bliss. No. I've been listening to your podcast for many years and really connect with the way of thinking about pregnancy and birth. I have always had things to contribute, but it never felt so compelled to write you as I am in this moment. I work at a hospital in Colorado, and I'm feeling really defeated about all the fear-based care, coercion, unnecessary intervention, and harm done to women and their babies. I recently had a home birth with my second baby, and it allowed me to break through the walls of the hospital setting and see even clearer what you and all have been talking about all these years. Even though I knew deep down that most of what I was experiencing in the hospital was wrong, my home birth gave me the firsthand experience of how different and safe it can be in that setting. Believe me, my coworkers and even physicians tried to instill their fear on my choice to birth at home. My birth was beautiful and I was able to prove them wrong, which is not the reason to do it, but I understand what she's saying, mm -hmm. but most likely didn't change their minds in any way that home birth is unsafe. Right. I would agree with that too. You know, there's such a cognitive dissonance there that if you're doing something one way all your life to suddenly realize that you're doing it differently or doing it wrong, um, or there's an alternative way, it's very hard for anybody to put their mind around. So they're not suddenly going to change just because you did. What they're going to say is, what bliss? You got lucky. Yeah. That's what they say. Yeah. My experiences at work break pieces of my soul every day. Just the length. I mean, again, we have really great fellow travelers. And some of you write really beautifully, but here's why I'm writing to you. I don't read as well, but I don't, I don't read it as well, but you write beautifully. Yeah. But here is what I'm writing you today for breach birth at the hospital. I've only witnessed a couple breach births because it is very rare. Our hospital policy allows quote unquote, a mother with twins to deliver baby B breach. This is the scenario that I witnessed the other night. Patient is a gravita one para zero. So she's a primate. Scheduled for induction at 35 weeks for IUGR baby A, who is Vertex and approved to deliver baby B breach. Just even the language. She was approved to deliver baby B. So we suspect baby A is smaller than baby B. Right. That's why they're doing it. This is problem number one with their logic. Why would they be willing to deliver a larger baby B breach on a prime? I'm using their logic against them here based on their logic of why breach birth is unsafe in the first place. Okay. They don't mm -hmm. want to deliver a singleton breach because the head might get stuck. Mm -hmm. But they'll deliver a second twin breach that's larger than twin A. So, I mean, I'm glad they are, but it is does show sort of a, a not stable thinking. When she was admitted to the attending, the attending provider told her that she was, quote, not allowed to get past four centimeters without getting an epidural. <laughs> this provider went on to tell me later how fearful she was, but if the hospital is going to allow it, then she is going to do everything possible to make it, quote, safe, unquote, and that this patient has no choice but to get an epidural and deliver in the OR. Delivery in the OR. Bright lights, masks, flatbed, ultrasound, fetal monitors, two OBs, anesthesia, three NICU nurses, a neonatal nurse practitioner, three labor nurses, and the patient and her family. So that's like 12 people minimum. For, for twins, right? Twins. For twins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Patient delivers baby A vertex. OB grabs baby B by the feet and pulls it out to the shoulders. Now, I don't know what time transpired here. I don't know if there was an indication for it, if it's just standard teaching in the 
in the hospital that after baby A comes out, you immediately go up rupture and grab baby B and pull it out. That's sort of what I did for 20 some years. So probably that's that's the way they do it. And you pull and you do pull the grab the feet and you do pull the baby out as far as you can pull it. And then you have to realize what position it's in. It's usually going to remain sacrum transverse because the arms are going to get up behind the head. You're going to have to go and take care of that. So, so what you said was, this is usually the standard of care where you break the bag of waters, you put your hands on the baby's feet, you pull the baby down as far as you can, and the baby is going to have likely have its hands above his head because of as the intervention. As you pull it down, the hands will go up, right? Because of the intervention. So, right. Like one of those examples, now you're going to have to go in and help those arms come. You're going to have to do maneuvers to help those arms come out because, because you put your hands on in the beginning. And so what we, a lot of times what we say about, um, reach delivery is hands off unless there's something abnormal and knowing what the signs of what's abnormal. And then once you intervene, you're going to have to keep intervening because, and it's a great example. We talk about it a lot with breach, but really it happens all the time in, in all kinds of deliveries. As soon as you start to intervene, you cause that ripple effect. And many other times you have to continue to intervene. So it's one of those great reasons, unless like you said, you weren't there. So you don't know that baby might've been deselling or something serious. And that was appropriate. We don't I know. suspect that would have been this in the story had that happened. And, and I would, I would say this, I would say that, that this is the way they're taught to do this. And and until they're taught something else, I at least admire the fact that she got the choice. They just, yeah, they didn't just go straight to C-section for her. Yeah, but you've got to be comfortable in that. And she, the, this doctor already said that she's uncomfortable. She didn't say it that way. She said she was f- fearful, yeah. but she was going to yeah, which is sort of like worse than uncomfortable, I guess. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay. So she grabs baby B by the feet and pulls out to the shoulder. She's pulling and twisting to get baby out for over two minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I'm not worried about time so much as I am just, it, it really, once you, a breach extraction shouldn't really take more than about 20 or 30 seconds to do it. Um, she claims the arm was around the head and stuck. After the arms are out, the second OB is pushing on the patient's belly with the ultrasound probe to try to flex the baby's head to assist with delivery. Now, this is what you do when the babies are in, when mom's in lithotomy position, you can do suprapubic if you have to. Um, Again, they also gave nitroglycerin, which is what you do when the head's trapped. But that means trapped by the cervix. Mm -hmm. That probably was not the case here. But again, everything is on an algorithm. Boom and boom. If A, then B, if B, then C. Mm-hmm. Baby comes out floppy with a squished arm. I don't know what squished arm means, <laughs> but comes around. Later does end up in the NICU for grunting. This was horrifying to watch, especially after listening to you and watching videos of home breech births and how beautiful they can be with little or no assistance. Yeah, and my, my emphasis there is that you just need the skills. I keep saying this. We teach these skills. Breach Without Borders teaches these skills. But the residency programs, which <laughs> have control of the future obstetricians of our country, don't teach these skills. Seems to me the things the providers did actually made the risk of head entrapment even more likely, such as the use of an epidural, being flat on an OR table, with no way to let movement or gravity assist. 
That's true. Yeah. I can't yeah. see how this experience was at all pleasant or empowering for the patient or for the baby in that matter either. Yay, sarcastically. She avoided a cesarean section, but right. at what cost? My husband wonders why I hate my job. Uh, I plan to become a midwife and leave the hospital setting and join the movement to better women's care. Thank you for all you do and sharing your wisdom, Britta. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, Britta, and uh, wishing you so much luck on your journey to becoming a midwife and being yeah. more happy with the work that you do. I support you 100%. All right. So when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, turning normal into pathology, induction, or platelets. And we'll be right back. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. Okay. Okay. We're back. What do you want to talk about this time? Platelets. Platelets? Oh god, you're leaving them my favorite one for your your it's like it's like uh yeah, you know where I want to go with this. Okay. So platelets. All right. This is a this is a fairly long letter. This is from uh, at Emily Ruth Rice on Instagram and her experience. So, hello, Doctor Stu and Goddess Bliss, whimsical Goddess Bliss. Okay, I have been an avid listener to the podcast for a couple years now. Thank you for all you are doing and changing the culture of birth. I was so excited when I saw you do an episode on thrombocytopenia. As I gave birth almost two years ago and could find little, very little resources about it, especially in the holistic care model. In that pregnancy, at my eight-week appointment, I had the typical CBC test, complete blood count, and my platelets came back 125,000. Okay, they said that that could be normal, all right, which is fine. At my 20-week appointment, my platelets were around 80,000. So again, I'm not sure why they drew them again at 20 weeks, other than the first one was low. And even though she's having no problems, they're following up. And that's the medicalized model. I'm not sure what all, all midwives would have drawn another one there. They probably wouldn't have. They probably would have waited till maybe the 28-week thing. But now we've got information that's not going to change anything we're doing, but it's more worrisome. So now we've got because she wasn't symptomatic. So what difference does it make? at 20 weeks, what her platelet count is, unless it dropped really, really low and she needed steroids or something like that. But, uh, you know, 
but then you'd probably have nosebleeds or other petechiae or other problems, right? They referred me to a hematologist. By the time I saw the hematologist, my platelets had dropped to 60,000. I had tried taking beef liver and other supplements, eating foods that Google told me could help. The midwives were no help with nutrition or any supplements. They said nothing could change it. They even said, quote, wow, these platelets are oppressively low, the lowest I've ever seen. At 80? 60. At 60, uh-huh. Yeah, but the midwives, but again, it's, even if you think that, maybe you shouldn't say it out loud. Not what so encouraging. Yeah, the language, absolutely. <laughs> okay. uh, which is a great feeling at eight months pregnant, not knowing about this. The hematologist was surprisingly comforting. They said they wouldn't have to intervene if I played it stayed around 60K. I would just be able to, I just wouldn't be able to get an epidural, which I didn't want anyway. But my platelets continued to drop till they hit 40K, 40,000. And they needed to put me on steroids. The steroids took my platelets back up to the 70,000 range. And they referred me to an MFM, and he told me I needed to get induced, blah, 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 which <laughs> she writes, blah, blah, blah. So I was induced at 39 weeks and four days, started on Pitocin. The laboring process wasn't too bad other than intense contractions. Um, thankfully, they broke my water. The baby was born less than an hour later. Uh, they drew my blood again. The platelet count was 39,000. I did hemorrhage right after delivery. I lost about 1,400 cc's. After that horrible bleeding stopped, the nurse had the audacity to tell me as I'm laying there completely out of it, been up all night. She told me that since I did lose so much blood that my milk probably wouldn't come in quickly enough for my baby and I would need to supplement with formula. I don't know why they tell people these things. Because thankfully, my milk did come in on day three and we are still nursing to this day. After delivery, the hematologist wanted me to get a bone marrow biopsy. That came back normal, but my platelets are still right at the low end. I would do anything not to give birth in a hospital ever again, even if that means transferring during a hemorrhage. I would rather do that than labor and deliver in a hospital. If I didn't during pregnancy or out of pregnancy have any of the symptoms of ITP, the only thing that the, told the hematologist is that I would bruise somewhat easily my whole life and on the heavier side of a menstrual cycle, but nothing that's ever been concerning, so this is just very frustrating for me. I just want all of the babies unmedicated in my living room from here on out. So my feeling is, again, unless you, by law, cannot deliver somebody with a platelet count under some number. And I think in California, you do have a number, right? What is that number? No, it doesn't. We looked it up. It doesn't actually have a number. But the women were saying under 100 is seems to be the standard. Right. So this may be not medical advice based on any sort of evidence, but it's medical advice based on experience and wisdom is that in her future pregnancies, if she's not getting bloody noses, if she's not bruising easily, um, why are we checking? If she wants to stay home, think about it again. It's not going to change anything that you do at home. You're not going to be sticking a needle in her back. If she bleeds too much, as some people do at home, we tend to be able to deal with that. If we don't deal with that and she lives in a city, you know, not two hours outside in the middle of the boonies, she can be transferred for postpartum hemorrhage like any other woman could be transferred for postpartum hemorrhage. So what I would 
strongly recommend for her to avoid this whole thing next time is to just maybe skip checking. Is that radical? It is very. <laughs> it's very radical. And, um, you know, I, I'm always an advocate for people to have um, choice in what they feel comfortable with. I think it's just understanding the risks and um, finding somebody who can support you in what you're feeling. But yeah, if you're, if it's not going to change the management of your care, then why would you check really? And the only thing I can say is in, in my opinion, that for the kind of care that she wants, it's going to give her better care mm-hmm. because she's not going to be basted in fear the entire time. Right. Now, if she decides she wants to know what it is and she wants to draw it, that's fine. Right. But to check it, and she's not having any clinical symptoms now, why does she have to deliver in a hospital? Why did she need to even be induced? What was the point of inducing her? Her platelet count was low anyway. So what was the point? Because it was going to get lower? Yeah. Well, it did get lower. You know, and she bled and they were able to manage that and she were able to take care of that. Right. So again, I, I, you know, I know that Maybe sometimes I even swing the pendulum a little too far in my zeal to advocate for for what women want. But this is the model by which I believe all healthcare should be practiced. And that is giving people as much information as they can. But ultimately, medical ethics dictates to us that ultimately the woman has the right to decide through informed consent, uninformed consent, informed refusal, uninformed refusal to do whatever she wants with her body right. in that, in that, in that pregnancy or in, in health or, in, you know, if your retina detaches, could I have not had another surgery and maybe suffered, you know, more permanent damage to my eye? Yeah, I could have. And I was actually thinking about it. Believe me. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you decided to get the surgery, but I get, I get what you're saying for sure. Yeah. What happens if it happens again, six months from now, how many times am I going to have them Poke holes in my eye. Yeah. I don't know. Hopefully he won't have to figure it out. No, I know. But I'm just saying that ultimately um, people have the right to make in, uh, decisions about it. Now, the practitioner also has the right to do what's in her his or her comfort zone. It really, I like what we even talked about earlier. It's not necessarily about their comfort, but their comfort is something that has to be factored in. But I would tell you there's plenty of midwives out there that would be very happy to take care of someone who had no ultrasounds and and no labs. Not not most of the city, big city folk, but there's a lot of midwives out there that'll do that. That's right. Okay. All right. So we're down to uh, induction or turning normal into pathology. I think you want me to choose turning uh, normal into pathology. Okay. Let's do that one. Gosh, <laughs> <laughs> I know you well. Well, this is a really short one, okay? Yes. But it's it's it, again, it shows it shows sort of the um, the uh, larceny of the medical model, okay? Right. So, I, this is from uh, at Little Swifty Mama on Instagram. So, thank you for writing this. Hi, Doctor Stu. I discovered some dumb doctor dogma for you, and thought I'd share it since it made me chuckle. For a little bit of a backstory, I'm a student midwife myself, and I just had my third baby. We ended up transferring to the hospital in labor and delivering in triage, (laughs) 
with several nurses begging me to wait. Mm. I was just double checking insurance claims afterwards and came across a list of conditions, quote unquote, that the on-call doctor submitted with my claims. They include conditions, I think she means by diagnosis codes. Okay. Oh, okay. Huh? So one, prolonged pregnancy. Two, maternal care for excessive fetal growth. Three, postpartum hemorrhage. Four, birth complicated by meconium. Now, with those, quote, complications in mind, I'll tell you they were written about a baby born at 40 weeks in one day. Wow. Prolonged pregnancy. Uh-huh. It was nine pounds, three ounces, excessive fetal growth. Excessive fetal growth. I think that's one of my favorites ever. Whose older siblings were perfectly on track to be the same size at the gestations they were born. Who was born precipitously. Okay, so... Um, Obviously, passage of meconium can happen with that, but it wasn't complicated by meconium. It just was there. Right. With SRs of eight and nine, and my discharge note said my estimated blood loss was 150 cc's. <laughs> Laughing emoji with tears coming out of its eyes. <laughs> I can't believe how good they are at turning completely normal things into pathology. So, again, for coding billing purposes, they put in postpartum hemorrhage. Prolonged pregnancy by one day, postpartum hemorrhage by 100, with 150 cc blood loss, and excessive growth for a nine pound, three ounce baby. And this is what they do every single day. This is what hospitals do. They have a whole department to do this, to upcode. It's called upcoding. It's like, all a game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's all a game. It's how can we squeeze the most money out of a system that's trying to squeeze the least money or pay us the least amount of money? Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, on both ends, the CEOs of the insurance company, the CEOs of the hospital are making a lot of money. But everybody in the mill is getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And when in some institutions, doctors are taught how to upcode. Oh, yeah. And and some, it's just done by the billing department, all right? But sometimes doctors purposely do this. So I don't know in this case whether the doctor submitted the claims or it was the hospital or whatever upcoding. But this is this is classically, again, it's a larcenous form of behavior. And it's subsidized every day. I think that's awesome that she that she noticed those things and wrote in. I'm, I'm actually shaking my head at 150 cc's as a postpartum hemorrhage. It's just... It's actually lying. It's actually insurance fraud is what it is. I understand. Yeah, you know, you're right. Why the doctor wants to try and get more money from the insurance company because they pay shit um, and you can't make a living. So I get that. Um, but, you know, AKA this whole thing, um, the system is broken. It's just broken. It is. It, it is. is. And it's, not fix it's not fixable and we're going to we're going to change it. Yeah. Bit by bit by bit, ripple yeah. by ripple, butterfly mm -hmm. effect. Do what we can. Mm -hmm. Okay. This last letter is, uh, and then before, and then I'm going to close with a positive hospital experience. But this last letter is a very short one on induction, and it's from Belinda on Instagram. Mm -hmm. and she writes, "I spent a very short time as an L and D nurse assistant manager, and longer as an L and D nurse in critical access hospitals. I did chart audits." So this is somebody who's got her finger on the pulse. I can tell you our lowest induction months were probably 33%. Remember, because we talked about that in our induction, the seduction of induction podcast. And 
I said it was over 30% and you thought it was a lot higher than that, right? right? But most months hovered around 50 to 75%. Once you induce the first and often at 39 weeks, they brainwash the mom into thinking her body just doesn't know how to go into labor. Yep. And the mom parrots this phrase, quote, yep. my baby was stubborn and my body just doesn't know how to labor without induction, unquote. It's infuriating. Yeah, it is. I always correct them by saying, quote, I'm sorry if your doctor made you think that, but I think your doctor just doesn't have the patience for your baby and your body to figure out the perfect gestation to be born. Love it. That's brilliant. She says, also of note, winter months are notorious for higher induction rates due to the holidays and potential bad weather conditions. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. There's quite a lot of wisdom in in these in, in these letters. It really, there really is, and I appreciate you, everybody who's listening, sending me stuff. I mean, it's obviously gets overwhelming. I enjoy it, but I only enjoy it for about two hours a day, <laughs> because beyond that, it gets to be too much. And I know that you and I talk sometimes, and it's like I send you some stuff, and you 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 send me some stuff, and I can't necessarily get it. And people will send me like some YouTube video to watch. And I look at it, it's like 47 minutes. It's like, I can't watch 47 minute video. So if you could, if people want to send us stuff, you got to narrow it down to like three minutes. Okay. You're nodding. She's nods. She nods on, on, on a silent, on a podcast. You can't nod on a podcast, please. That's a good uh, suggestion. Three less. You're going to like this one because it's, it's close to home. Okay. This is from Amanda. She's a CNM. You probably you may even know her. She says, hello, Dr. Stu and Goddess Bliss. I really could sing you all praises for the whole email, but I will keep it short and sweet. You are doing good, important work, and I'm so grateful to have you as a resource in my professional and personal life. In the recent podcast, there have been two stories about positive transfers with Ventura County Medical Center. So I figured I would email y'all. I love that. She must be from the South. Mostly for Bliss now and my own birth transfer with them. As a CNM with a lot of L&D and RN experience, when I became pregnant, I knew I wanted midwifery care and a community birth. I found midwife Melissa Navarro at Ventura and Grow, at Grow in Ventura at Grow Midwifery, her birth center and home birth practice. She's one of the loveliest humans you could ever meet, and my husband and I both adore her care. You know her, right? Yes, I do yeah, know Melissa. And I know, her, I know her pretty well. I've done births with her. I think we even had a breach, reteach breach at her birth center years ago. After a very normal start of labor, I arrived at the birth center at eight centimeters and was there for about 10 hours. I got to 10 centimeters and pushed for three plush hours, but baby was asynclitic and not moving much. We made the decision to transfer to VCMC. Once we got there, I got an epidural for therapeutic rest and started pit as my contractions had spaced out. We got in just prior to shift change, and the day shift team was great, but we didn't interact much. Our night shift docs were fabulous. They sat and listened to our birth plan. They were just so open and made me feel at ease. We pushed in different positions, and I wound up holding my own fetal monitor as a reflex from labor and delivery. Mm -hmm. They offered vacuum assistance due to the long pushing time. But I and baby were fine, and I respect and they respected my decision when I declined. After another three hours of pushing, baby finally came with a hand by its face. Mm -hmm. Baby was as small for gestational age, and they were understanding of our declination of blood sugars, billy testing, hepatitis B, erythromycin, 
We actually left AMA after getting some sleep overnight, and the staff was continuously very supportive. I just wanted to share my VCMC transfer and hope Bliss continues to use their services as needed. Thank you for all you do. I'm trying to make a difference in my community of Colorado. Oh, she's moved to Colorado. So part of the reason that I wanted to end with this today is because, you know, we tell these stories of all these things that go on at the hospital and they are legion as far as dumb stuff. But this is the way it should look. This is the way it should work. Exactly. It's sad that I am shocked when they actually listen. Um, and that's that's because we've experienced or heard so many stories when it was the opposite. So um, I love that you put this in to say, you know, this can happen. We can have this kind of collaborative care and families can have their needs and desires respected. And that's the gold standard. So again, Good job, VCMC, in respecting families' choices and um, being respectful to the midwives as they transport in. So needed. Good communication, getting rid of fear. Well, good good communication can get rid of fear because a lot of doctors fear a bad outcome and getting sued, and you know, there's and, and they don't and they don't know their clients. Here's a case where a woman came in. And she didn't know, they didn't know her. All right. Maybe they, maybe they did a little bit. Maybe she used to work. I don't, I don't remember that too well, but you know, she got to know some people on the day shift, but then, then, then everybody changed. So now she's got to get to know people all over again. And they did it nicely. Mm-hmm. And this is a model that other hospitals could just take a second, take a deep breath, step back, stop your panic. Maybe let twins deliver in the labor room. Maybe let them do, deliver standing up. Maybe they don't, not everyone needs an IV. Maybe they could eat, you know, maybe they could wear their own jammies. Uh, You know, we don't have to do everything on an algorithm. It's exactly. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to continue to heal. I got a few hours of daylight left. I'm going to go for a bike ride on my birthday. And then I'm going to make dinner. And then I'm going to wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. What are you going to do? Well, I'm so happy that I got to see you on your birthday. And um, I wish that I could to t- take a little ride around the the lake with you. But you are so loved. And, you know, the fact that you were so willing to just record on your birthday just shows who you are. And we're all so grateful that you continue to do this work. And I'm especially blessed that I get to be with you every week. So. Well, what we're doing is really important, and, I, and I've and i never gotten so much positive feedback as I'm getting lately from people just saying how we're affecting their lives and telling us, you know, you and I had a meeting with somebody yesterday, and they told us, like, you know, we're rock stars. It's like, no, we're not rock stars. And they go, yeah, yeah, in, in this community, we are. And it's like, wow, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm, I don't want that. I want the message to get out. And this is, and, and I'm blessed to be with you, and I'm blessed that we are doing the work that I can feel so energetic about. So many people go to work every day and they're not energetic about their work. Yeah. We're lucky. Yeah, we're so lucky. So thank you. And enjoy the sunshine. And um, I love you so much. Okay. And thank everybody for listening and support our sponsors. Uh, We love them because they they pay us money. Okay. (laughs) 
So uh, until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.